And so we're just gonna take a moment and pray. Pray for the various kinds of storms you may find yourself in the middle of and just wanna invite you to stand if you're there in the middle of one of those kinds of storms, big or small, or maybe you wanna stand on behalf of someone who you know is. Uh, We just wanna take a moment here before we get into the word and just, just pray for one another. So just stand right where you're at and we're just gonna pray. family, so if this would be the right room to let folks know, hey, waters are rising and ground is quaking a bit. And Brother Richard standing back there, he just had his heart procedure done this week and he's in the house of the Lord today. Tom and Denise Chef. I don't know if any of the Chef family is here, but Tom just came through quadruple bypass surgery and he's in his 50s. All kinds of things. So anyone else? Let's make sure no one's standing alone, okay? Those of you around someone standing, just stand with them. Put an arm on a shoulder, whether you know their name or not. This is part of us being the body, right? Arm on a shoulder. Make sure no one's alone. pray together. Thank you for the gift of music and artists who can put words to experiences. Lord, there are some circumstances standing before you, some wondering if they can get through what they're going through. Some got news this week of stuff they never thought they'd get news about. Some whose bodies are failing or marriages struggling or job situations uncertain. Some feeling weighted down by sin. Some having said goodbye to someone they loved so much recently. for all those standing. Just pray Psalm 63 over them now. The promise that as we cling to you, the psalmist says, your right hand upholds us. So would you right now, by the power of your spirit, just undergird those standing with your strong right hand and make the path beneath their feet level ground and breathe hope where there's despair. Lift up their eyes to you. Those feeling alone, may they be reminded that you are with us, that we're never alone in Jesus. May the arm on the shoulder now be reminded that you, Lord, through your body are here. Those needing healing, pour out your healing grace. Those needing an answer to prayer for jobs and finances and for you to come through in ways we could have never imagined. We stand asking, Lord, asking you to show up and demonstrate that you are Lord and God and provider. And then in this space in between, would you find us faithful as a people? Faithful to put our roots down in you, to be anchored in the midst of the storm, that you are our hope and that we trust you. Whether we can see our way through it or not, we trust you. Thank you that you are God 
above every storm. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. I want to encourage those of you who uh, maybe saw a friend or someone who maybe you know or don't know standing. And, you know, part of being the body is um, walking alongside those going through stuff. So I want to encourage you to break the ice, even if you didn't know their name, get the name and maybe get an email or a cell phone and just say, hey, I just want to encourage you this week. I just want to pray for you. I just want to walk with you through it so no one leaves alone. Can we commit to do that, that no one around here goes through it alone because we're the body together? And this is the core of what it means what we've been talking about all month. We're calling it Shalom Life. We've been talking about what it means to have a whole and complete life. What does it mean to live life with God in the way things are supposed to be? And we said Shalom Life is found in the yoke of Jesus. That when you get yoked up to Jesus, being a Christian means you come to him. Everybody learns how to live from somebody. And here's the amazing invitation of the Christian life. You can learn how to live from Jesus. It doesn't get any better than him. The good and strong and loving and generous and wise and competent God that is in Christ, he says, you can take that yoke upon you. I'll teach you how to live. And when you come and become yoked to Jesus and let him begin to guide your life, you'll find he wants to talk about the whole person. He's not interested in just compartments. He's interested in the wholeness, the shalom life, and that there's this part of us, this aspect, this integrating element of us called a soul, and that shalom life is lived from a soul-centered life, that there's a wholeness and completeness to this integrating element. You're not just a will. You're not just a mind. You don't just have emotions. You don't just have a body. You are also a soul, and it's the soul that integrates all of those things in together into a singular life, and into that soul-like Jesus brings shalom. As you walk with him and become yoked, he begins to put back in order things that get quite disordered because as we talked about last week, we're born into this kind of condition with the soul, right? The sponginess of this, the neediness of the soul is longing to have things put back the way they're supposed to be. And until the soul finds its rest in God, it will remain relentlessly restless, and so the diagram at the top of your notes is just intended to capture uh, my attempt to put together kind of three core elements of how Jesus cares for our souls. How does he begin to bring our lives back together in some kind of completeness? And last week we talked about the role of the Holy Spirit. The sooner we can figure this out, the better. You can't put your life back together on your own. That would be a huge life lesson to internalize. The sooner the better. That you try to figure all this out on your own and you say, I'm just going to strap it up and figure it all out and do it myself is pretty much the point of it's going to become increasingly disorderly. And so Jesus says, you come to me and I will bring life beyond you into you. A stream of living water is the beginning point for wholeness and shalom life in the soul. We're born into a condition where the soul is broken and relentlessly needy and looking for what only Christ can provide. The soul was always intended to orbit around God and with God and in God. And so there's this stream of living water that's got to come and quench the deepest desires of the heart, soul, mind, and body. 
The reason your soul is so relentlessly needy is it continues to point to God's the only one big enough to deal with all of that. You try to look to your spouse to deal with that, that's trouble for the marriage front. You look to your kids to deal with that, trouble on the parenting front. You you look to your career to deal with that, trouble on the career front. Because none of those things are going to be able to quench and touch what the soul is longing for. And it is longing for God, for his stream of living water to come. And then next week, we're going to get into the role of spiritual practices and what does it mean to put certain disciplines, kind of habits into our life that help care for our soul well. And today, we're going to look at the role of circumstances, the everyday aspect of our lives as the location for God's soul care. I want you to look at the quote I put at the top of your notes there. If you haven't pulled that out, go ahead and do so. Dallas Willard said it this way, God has yet to bless anyone except where they actually are. Think about that a second. God has yet to bless anyone except where they actually are. And if we faithlessly discard situation after situation, moment after moment as not being right, we will simply have no place to receive his kingdom into our life. For those situations and moments are our life. See, sometimes I can convince myself that if I could just get some aspect of my outside world running a little better, Like if I could just kind of get through the the work project, if I could just deal with the financial crunch at home, if I kind of work through the phase of family life that we're in, if I just kind of get through the ministry challenge here or the health crisis there or dealing with an aging parent there, if I could just kind of get some of the outside world running a little bit better, then I'll kind of get centered with God and kind of get about this soul work stuff. When Jesus paints the exact opposite picture, of all of this. It's like, hey, Simpson, here's the reality. Your current circumstances, good or bad, joyful or painful, mundane and routine, or mountaintops, plateaus, or valleys, your current circumstances, whatever they are, Simpson, that is your actual life. That's your real life. You don't wait to like start living some other kind of a life to start working with me and relating with me and living life with me. You live life with me from right now. The everydayness of your life and all of those circumstances. That's central to soul care. Because what happens to us is we'll look around the room or we'll get in life groups and we'll look across there and go, boy, if I had those kind of things going on like that person does, I think my spiritual life would just go to a whole new place. That's absolutely the wrong way to look at it. Because the only way your spiritual life is going to go from where it is to wherever God wants it to be next It starts where? Right where you are. Your actual, real, ordinary, everyday life. In the middle of the storm, on the mountaintops, and everywhere in between. And the passage that gets at the core of this, I think, most clearly, is a passage from Jesus' brother, James. It's a passage that we don't often like to quote, and we certainly don't like to apply much, And it says it this way, James chapter 1, verse 2 and following. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. 
So I want you to look at that phrase at the end of verse two, many kinds, do you see that? Trials and sufferings come on a spectrum of many different kinds, right? You can go through a, a difficult stretch where you just got bunch of chaos going on at work, and that has its own set of trials and challenges. Uh, maybe you got a difficult doctor's report, and there's just uncertainty about where all that's going. And, and then there's another category of trials. When you sit beside the bedside of someone you love so much, and you watch them slowly pass away, and you're there to say the goodbyes, and that's another category. And then there's categories of trials of broken marriages. And so what I want to talk about today in the spectrum of all these trials is there is a kind of trial that I want to place this term upon called the dark night of the soul. That phrase comes from a 16th century Carmelite monk in Spain named John. John, in his year, earlier years, was wanting to help the church and in his attempt to help the church, found himself in a lot of trouble, a lot of trials and persecutions. He basically spent a large portion of his adult life arrested and imprisoned and being physically uh, not, not treated well. And so behind bars, he wrote a poem called The Dark Night of the Soul. And in that poem, the church fathers eventually got a hold of it. They recognized how faithful and committed and devoted John was in all of his years of imprisonment. So they gave him the title, St. John of the Cross. They gave him the title of the cross because he bore the cross of Jesus literally and physically in his life so much that St. John of the Cross became associated with putting words to a suffering in silence that he termed a dark night of the soul. There is a kind of suffering on the spectrum of suffering where you hit this place of darkness that's mostly filled with silence. And listen to how St. John put it. I think I put this quote in your notes. God's love is not content to leave us in our weakness. And for this reason, he takes us into a dark night. He weans us from all the pleasures by giving us dry times and inward darkness. No soul will ever grow deep in the spiritual life unless God works passively in that soul by means of the dark night. I translate that, that there is a detachment that only the darkness can bring. And James knew something about this, James being Jesus' half-brother. You know, James grew up with Jesus. Mary and Joseph had other children. Certainly, Mary had Jesus, born of the Holy Spirit, but after Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph had children. James was one of those children. So James and Jesus grew up together. So his half-brother. And James eventually became the senior pastor of the church in Jerusalem after Jesus was resurrected. And if you know the storyline, as we studied this past year, the storyline of the book of Acts, was it an easy and comfortable place to be in in the early church after Jesus' resurrection? No. Jerusalem was a hotbed for what? Persecution, arrests, trials. Remember, what did they do to Jesus? It was the Jews who were in religious authority 
They were the ones clamoring to execute this guy, Jesus. And then the Romans, who were in like political and government authority, they were the ones who were really upset about the empty tomb. They're like, couldn't you just guard that tomb? And what's up? We got to find this body, shut down this whole movement that's going on because the Romans were threatened by the increasing attention this Jesus way was getting. And the Jews were threatened by the religious attention it was getting because if Jesus was right and his followers were right, the whole pillars of Judaism are going to come crumbling down. The law, the prophets, the temple, the whole deal. So if you're going to be a follower of Jesus at that time, it's going to be difficult. You're actually going to live out what Jesus said in John 15. Remember we said in John 15, 20? If they persecuted me, what are they going to do with you? They're going to persecute you. James is living that. And then he takes the pastoral role at the church in Jerusalem. Oh, I mean, it was already a big deal if you had the Jesus way labeled on you as a person. How about when you set up a little shop on the corner and put a cross out there and say, we're gonna gather these people together. Do you think whoever's in charge of that group's gonna be under the gun on some things? James was that. To the point where in 62 AD, James was executed, stoned to death one of many martyrs in the early church. Why? Why did they execute him? Because they were eliminating people who were building momentum around Jesus, and James was one of those. It is this James who knows something about, I'm just guessing, much like John the Baptist, when he's arrested and in prison and thinking, they're probably gonna execute me. Jesus could have done something about that and chose not to. I think John the Baptist and his family know about dark night of the soul when John's family had to get together and have a funeral and deal with, well, you rescued all kinds of other people, Jesus. Why? And how about James? Half-brother, surely you could do something. If you could roll the stone away, could you not like, you know, throw open the jail cells like you did for Peter so many times? Why James and his family? How about Mary and Joseph? And you think they knew something about dark night of the soul? I think they did. I think James was very skilled in this, many kinds of trials. So I think he put kinds of trials on the spectrum of trials. And what I want us to look at today is two reasons to embrace the darkness when it comes and not run from it. And the first reason is because this darkness, this dark night of the soul will take you to places that comfort and convenience never will. Richard Rohr, he said it this way. I put this quote in your notes. So, God might let us plateau for a while. Say between 30 and 40. He'll let you just sit there with your satisfying definition of faith. Then... God throws us a whammy or a double whammy to get us to go further. If he doesn't, we won't move outside our comfort zone. Unless we're kicked or pulled or shoved, we all take the path of least resistance. Understandably, life's hard enough. Why would we make it harder on ourselves? We won't move ordinarily until the old answers don't work anymore. Pain is an activator that forces us to choose between what is important and what is not. 
in James's terminology, he would say that there are certain aspects of our soul that will not be developed and formed and shaped without some places of darkness, in some dark night seasons of the soul. How does James say it? He says, the testing of your faith produces something. Perseverance. Have you ever thought about how, how does perseverance get developed in a person? Do you, are you just like zapped with perseverance? You just wake up one day and you're praying for it, say, God, I just wanna become a person who endures more, who doesn't give up, who presses on when it's hard. I wanna be a person of great perseverance. And you just wake up more and go, boy, I just feel like I'm, I'm just full of perseverance. That's not how this works. James says, you're, you're not gonna get perseverance in the character and fabric of your soul until you encounter what? Some things in life that you're walked to the edge of a cliff and you go, God, I don't think I can take one more step. I don't think I can get through whatever it is I'm going through. And right there, when you're just about to give up and everything's about to cave in and you don't and you press on and you press through and by his grace you come through it, guess what gets formed in that kind of a dark night of the soul season? Perseverance. And perseverance, what does he say? It's got to finish its work. You can't be mature and complete. That's what James said. If you want to be mature and complete, you'd like to have shalom life, a wholeness to your life. Do you recognize there's no concept of wholeness in life, a completeness in life, without a development of the character that James is talking about here in chapter one, two to four? A matureness and a completeness comes in seasons of darkness. What are the implications for us as parents on this? Think about this as a parent for a minute. As a parent, we can become quite tempted to shield our kids from darkness, from just difficulty, from pain. It's one of the hardest things as a parent to watch your kid go through something really difficult. And you wanna jump in, and the parent can tend to wanna rescue and fix it and kinda get them out of that pain as quick as you can. When James is pointing, actually there's an embracing of the pain of life. I think a good picture of parenting would be, let your kids watch you parent with God, and then at appropriate times, with tears. Because that's real life. Real life is you're gonna live it with God, and you're gonna hit some places where the tears are gonna flow. And if you just shield your kids from all of that, guess what's not quite developed enough in the soul and the character? Perseverance. There's a lack of completing the kind of work God wants to do. At age-appropriate times, follow me here, mom and dad, but right when they, most, most often our kids are able to process far much more about pain and suffering than we give them credit for. I think that's part of just the way God shapes a person. That's why a kid is so resilient, much more resilient than adults are. You uproot kids and thrust them around the country in all kinds of moves. We as adults struggle with that far more than our kids do. Our kids struggle, but in the degree of struggle, they adapt. And they're able to kind of go with the flow in a way that, well, I think that's part of the gift God gives them in their younger years. And the older we get, the more difficult we become on all kinds of fronts. And so I think as parents, let's ask ourselves, are we modeling a kind of life before our kids that's lived with God and with tears. Because if you're yoked to Jesus, the tears are gonna come. Just keep living, the tears are gonna come. 
Look at Jesus. What did they do to him? Do you think Mary and Joseph and James and John and Peter and Andrew, do you think they watched Jesus climb the hill of Golgotha in all of the blood and all the sweat and all the anguish and all the torture and torment that he went through? Do you think they watched all of that and concluded, boy, I'm going to go Jesus' way and this life is going to be incredibly easy, incredibly comfortable and incredibly convenient. That wasn't even in their paradigm because they said, actually, we're going to carry a cross We're going to walk in his ways. We're going to reflect his life. And they're going to remember, uh, by the way, if the kind of things that happened to me, they're probably going to happen to you, of which most, if not all, of the early leaders of the church gave their life similarly to Jesus. And there's a kind of condition that sets in upon us when we shun the darkness. Have you ever been around folks who... When you get near them, which by the way, you know when you get near a person, you know what you experience about that person is their soul. That's why the outer rim on the diagram the last few weeks has been the soul. It's the integrating element. It's the soul of the person that you actually come into contact with. We use phrases like, well, they just kind of have a certain atmosphere, ethos about them. They kind of give off a certain vibe. We use things like that. Do you know what we're really saying? That's, what, that's their soul. There's a... There's a We're leaky vessels as humans. You can't hide your soul, who you are. It just comes out of you. If you just hang around you for any length of time, the true you starts coming through and leaking out. It's your soul. And one kind of a person can get developed if you continue to shun the darkness, deny the darkness. It's kind of, you you live with this, I think, unhealthy optimism about lots of things. It's when Your life could be unraveling on multiple fronts. Your kids are going AWOL on some fronts. You're dealing with a a dying parent. You've got your own health crisis. Marriage is on the rocks. You're not sleeping very well at night. And someone walks up to you in the atrium of the church and says, hey, how are things going? And you just have this bubbly aura about you. Like everything's just great. It's great. It's always great. Marriage is great. And life is great. And health is great. Great, 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 great. You're like, that's... That's not reality. And you know it in your soul. But you know what that soul, what's happened to that soul? That soul has shunned the darkness, has pushed it away, Say, I don't want to go, I don't know what to do with that, so I'm just going to kind of fake it a little bit, kind of fake my way out of it. And there's this veneer, and you detect it. There's an artificiality about it. And you know, if you'll listen attentively enough, there's a lot below the surface of all that bouncing around happy optimism stuff. And I'm all for being a super optimistic person. Don't hear me wrong. I'm just saying, gang, there are times in James 1 seasons of life where everything is not great. It's hard. Gut-wrenchingly hard. So when I talked to Tanya Linton this morning on the phone and her father had just passed away, do you think Tanya was just telling me, oh, everything's just going so great. Tanya was weeping, what the Bible calls a soul weep, where there's a grieving and a groaning that comes. Have you felt that? Have you experienced that? Just keep living. You will. And you do it with God and with tears. Are you with me in this? Life is with God. For sure, he's there. Tanya knows he's there, knows Jesus is with her, feels his grace and his strength and his peace, but the tears are flowing because she just is saying goodbye to a dad she loves so deeply for 74 years in this life. That's real life, gang. 
And this will be a place in Tanya's development of perseverance and maturity and completeness and God doing a work in there that places of comfort never will. And do you see then the dark night as an invitation rooted in the love of God? Dark night is not punishment of God. Whole different discussion we get into on self-inflicted wilderness and dark stuff. That's a different discussion for a different day. I'm talking about the stuff that you know God's sovereign hand has led the circumstances of your life into a place where you are suffering in the kind of silence of God. And at the core of that invitation is a love for you to go to a place with him that comforts and convenience could never take you. So wisdom would be embrace it. Embrace it. Don't shun it. James's language is actually consider it pure joy. That's my, my translation is embrace this. Many kinds of trials, even this dark night kind of a trial, embrace it because there's a perseverance that's gonna be built in you. There's some stuff that's gonna happen on the inside of you that's in the mature and complete and you'll get to the place where you're not lacking in the development areas on the inside. How? Embrace, embrace, embrace. And secondly, you embrace the darkness not just because it takes you to a place that comfort never will, but because it will test the dark night of the soul will test your joyful confidence in God. I grew up in a family of fishermen. Fishermen in the room, let's see your hands here. Fishermen in the room or fisherwomen in the room. I grew up in a family of fishermen. I tried really hard to participate in the activity. I never caught the fishing bug. And one aspect of the fisherman syndrome I've never really understood at all is ice fishing. I grew up in central Iowa, somewhere around mid-December. My dad would load up the pickup truck, throw overalls in there, an ice auger in there, a bunch of fishing gear in there, and he would tell my brother and I, put lots of layers of clothes on, we're going fishing today. And I went. And we would drive out to a lake that was mostly abandoned, obviously so. It's single digits temp, 20 mile an hour winds blowing, five gallon buckets to sit on. Hey, we were old school, no shacks and heaters and all that. You guys with all your fancy schmancy stuff. No, that wasn't, back in the day, it was just five gallon bucket and overalls. Well, we pull up, mid-December was kind of the, the time when word got out, hey, it's time to start ice fishing in Iowa. It'd be later here because it takes a little longer to freeze. And we'd pull up to a farm pond that no one else had been to yet. And here's where it got a little adventurous. Dad and his buddies would say to my brother and I, hey, you kids, you go test the ice. <laughs> now you know why moms never got invited on this trip. True story. You don't think it. True story. And guess who got to go out on the ice first? They picked the Lightest member of the crew, I got to be the one first. I walk up to the edge of the farm pond, looking out over this, what are we doing? And I get to be the one where I'll sit in the warm pickup truck, kind of looking out over there, let's see, let's see what Eric does out on that ice. You're kind of, you know, you're doing that. And then, and then the first sound of, yeah. well, you get out there far enough, and then they see I haven't fallen through. 
My brother joins me and he brings the ice auger. And then this is back, no power auger back in those days. We're cranking out there. Dad and his buddies in the pickup truck enjoying the world. We're cranking out there on the ice. We see, ah, it's, you know, at least need to be about four inches or so. And looks good. We give them the thumbs up and then they're kind of start unloading. Then usually one of the members of the adult party will say, do you think, you know what's coming? Do you think it's strong enough to what? Hold the pickup. <laughs> and then there's this discussion going on. Well, I go out there and test that. How, how deep do you think it is? Oh, I think, well, let's test it. And in central Iowa, every mid-December or so, here are some scenes that are published in the local paper. This is what you see. <laughs> some of you wonder, now you know why I moved to Indiana. You're like... I want you to leave that image up there, Ted. Here's what James 1 says. Unless you sit in the dark and go through some stuff in the dark, that's where your faith will land. The thickness of the soul is tested when it sits in the dark. You can't gauge the thickness of the soul just skating along and shunning the darkness. The only way you know what's really there is what? There are going to be many kinds, many kinds of trials. And when they come, it's going to withstand the weight of your every day life. How? Because you endured, you persevered, you held on to Christ, he held on to you, he gave you grace in the moments. You came through however long dark night can be weeks, months, years, you come through that and you look back upon it and there's a thickness, a thickness in the soul. Frederick Faber said it this way, Last quote in your notes there. In the spiritual life, God chooses to try our patience, first of all, by his slowness. Anybody countered that yet? Have you noticed God's quite comfortable in his slowness? He's not fretting about it at all. He is slow. We are swift because we are but for a time and he has been for eternity. We must wait for God long, meekly, in the wind and wet, in the thunder and the lightning, in the cold and the dark. Wait, and he will come. He never comes to those who do not wait. He does not go their road. When he comes, go with him, but go slowly. Fall a little behind. When he quickens his pace, be sure of it before you quicken yours. But when he slackens, Slacken at once, and do not be slow only, but silent, very silent, for he is God. See, darkness and slowness are like dance partners in the spiritual life. Why? Because God cares far more about the kind of person we're becoming 
than about, about, than about maintaining some level of comfort or convenience on circumstance. If you're trying to manage the Christian life and coach God into maximizing comfort and convenience and minimizing darkness and pain, you are in for a very frustrating relationship. Because God says, actually, it's rooted in my love for you, that I'm drawing you into a space where you can't hear and you can't see and you can't know and it's probably gonna last longer than you prefer. It's probably gonna be darker than you imagined it to be. But what's the promise? I will be with you. You will not be in that alone. And in that process, in the many kinds of trials, there's a perseverance and an endurance, a completeness, a finishing of a work in you. is why I think it's God cares far more about the thickness of the soul than he does the comfort of our lives, which is why I think James, if he were here with us today, would say, hey, Eagle Church, whatever you do, don't shun the darkness. Don't go looking for it. It's not like you're running around looking for it. But when it comes, don't shun it because it's an invitation rooted in grace and love and can take you to places that the easy street never will. And make no mistake about it, when you hit these tough stretches in life, this current experience you're in will be a test of your joyful confidence in God. It's one thing to have joyful confidence in God when everything in your life is going pretty much in line with your preferences. That's not too tough to come to the house of God and sing about the goodness of God and how great his grace is, and the peace of God, and the love of God. How about when the rug is pulled out from the circumstances of your life, and you walk into the house of God, and you stay anchored in the song we're about to sing together, that there is a good, good father, that the shepherd is a good shepherd, and he is a loving shepherd, and he is a kind and generous shepherd, and he will not leave me, and he will not forsake me. Yes, it is dark, and yes, it is slow, slow, and I can't see I'm gonna get through this, but I know one thing, the only way I'm getting through it is my soul is gonna cling to you. Because like Psalm 23 said, (laughs) there is a shepherd who's in charge of restoring the soul. Restoreth the soul. So worship team, come back up. And the song that they began to teach us last week is gonna become a little bit of an anthem for us, I think, as we journey through this early part of 2016. Because we stay anchored in the character of the goodness of God, while we navigate the darkness of the circumstances of life. And maybe just these lyrics can just help kind of sing that in to whatever place of darkness you may find yourself in. And that's what the prayer area is here for. Like I mentioned last week, this prayer area is soul work area. Think of it that way. And you come, pray by yourself, with family. This is just space for you. And just to meet with God and say, God, this is where I'm at. And if you're not in the dark night of the soul there, it's not you're, what's wrong with me, it's just today then is about just kind of preparation and grounding and training for when those days come. Then we're not all gonna freak out. Then we're gonna recognize this is part of this journey of life with Jesus. There are times in which it's filled with light and hope and joy and peace and the other times it's filled with James 1. And when those seasons come, We embrace, we don't shun. Amen.